Chapter Three of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On circumstantial evidence, it was a wet October night, and Sergeant Pym was doing his turn of duty as house watchman at the desk, with the blurred light of a street lamp staring blearily at him through the open door, and the truck house clock ticking off his stretch comfortably above him. A man drifted in from the fog to catch on the chain that sagged across the doorway, and asked the time in a broken English and a tone insidiously meek. Pym focused an absent eye on him without answering, for the hour was plain on the clock there, and the man was a tenement-quarter foreigner, in a misfit of cast-off clothes. Silence did not discourage him. He looked up at the timepiece. Nine, he said. Is it sure? Pym chose to receive that question of the accuracy of the clock as an insult to the house, and to accept, as an added insolence, the manner in which it was asked, with a yellow-toothed leer, at once wheedling and sly. He raised his eyebrows to an impossible height on his forehead, in a monkey trick he had as the clown of the company, and then drew them down in a portentous scowl of eye-blazing rage, puffed cheeks, and bristling moustache and the man at the door, hiding his grin, at once, in a hairy growth, as coarse as the beard of a coconut, which covered his face from his eyes to his throat, began to jabber a frightening explanation of how he had to meet a friend in Park Row at nine o'clock. Long Tom Donnelly, who was pitchforking the bedding for one of the horses, called out to him in the tone of a threat. "'What's that, eh?' The man turned his head to flash a side-glance at the stall with an evil glisten of the whites of his eyes, and, at sight of Donnelly's sallow face, he sidled away from the door and disappeared in the fog again. The wrinkles of Pym's good-natured smile subsided slowly into a blank placidity of face. He fondled his moustache on a pouted lip for a vacant-minded minute or more. Then he clasped his hands over his waist and twirled his thumbs for another bored interval. Finally he threw back his head in a sleepy yawn at the clock. The hands of it marked fifteen minutes after nine. His eyes opened as his mouth suddenly shut. He twisted his neck and stared. Nine, is it? he muttered. And that ain't more'n five minutes ago. He got up and walked uneasily to the door, to peer down the street, choked with yellow mist, in the direction which the man had taken, and it struck him, then, that this was not the direction in which Park Row lay. He came back to Donnelly. "'Ever see that mug before?' he asked. "'Sure,' Donnelly drawled. "'Lives on top floor down street.' Pym studied the clock. "'He got a friend of mine run out of there once,' Donnelly went on. "'Said he was stealin' when he was upstairs peddlin' clean zine.' he added dryly, I reported him for not having enough fire escapes. Pym fingered his chin. You'd know the place if you saw it? I guess yes, Donnelly answered, with grim conviction. Pym turned on his heel. All right, he said. Take this desk a jiffy. And he started up the stairway three steps at a bound. Donnelly had a habitual pose of critical imperturbability, and he leaned on his pitchfork to watch Pym's ascension, now, in a cool contempt for his waste of energy. He heard him rap on a door above stairs. He heard the captain's deep voice answer. 
he heard the door closed with a careful click of the lock. When he put up his pitchfork and went to the desk, he sat down with an expression of bored superiority and resignation. Pym and he were the oldest members of the company, but while he carried himself always with a dignity and reserve befitting his wisdom and experience, Pym played the fool for the sake of being popular with the men, and scoffed at Donnelly's pretensions with a freedom that left no friendliness between them. Their intercourse was an affair of mutual antipathy, occasionally relieved by outbursts of mutual contempt. Donnelly, therefore, did not worry his calm with any speculation as to the cause of Pym's excitement. He did not move even when he heard the door upstairs opened again, and heard the captain call, "'Take Donnelly! I'll put another man on the desk!' Pym dropped down the sliding pole beside the truck. "'Come along with me, Tom,' he said, fumbling among the forcible entrance tools. "'We're going to make a call.' Donnelly licked his lips. "'What's doin'? "'That's what I want to know,' Pym said. "'Does your friend live top-floor front?' "'No, back.' Pym came around the truck, buttoning the company's long jimmy under his coat. "'Fire escape, eh?' Donnelly nodded. "'Up the back. What's doin?' Pym laughed, irritatingly. "'Nothin,' he said. "'Or a surprise party for your friend. Get a move on.' He ducked under the door-chain, and Long Tom followed as gracefully as a camel. They turned down toward the waterfront, Pym setting a pace that did not suit Donnelly's dignity, and maintaining a silence that was annoying to his pride. "'Did you ever prove an alibi?' the sergeant asked at last. Donnelly growled. "'Kinda gay, ain't you?' "'Oh, I don't know,' Pym retorted. Not's gay's you'll be if his whiskers ain't expectin' to collect insurance on his beddin'." And Donnelly closed his thin lips on a sudden understanding of the situation. Pym spat in a manner of importance. "'When one of those gentry gets interested in drawin' attention to the time,' he said, in a tone of superior knowledge, "'it's like's not he wants witnesses that he weren't at home about then. See? Get a gate on.' Donnelly reluctantly swung a quicker stride. "'There's more things to be learned on the east side,' Pym added, "'than comes out in a civil service exam.' And that was a thrust at Donnelly's ambition to qualify for a lieutenancy. They hurried down the greasy flagstones, in a fog so thick that they could not more than see the disembodied phantoms of the street lamps, hung weirdly in their halos across the road. "'He's watchin' around here somewheres, I'll bet,' Pym said. Keep in the dark best you can." Donnelly stopped short before an open door that gave on a hallway as dark as a sewer. "'This is whole?' Pym said. Donnelly grunted. They groped their way through the narrow passage into a small court, dimly lit from the windows of a rear tenement that fronted on it. "'He's up on top,' Donnelly explained sulkily. "'They're dago trimmin' factories underneath.' "'Good enough,' Pym said. There's no lights, is there?" They could see none. Pym found a peddler's pushcart in an angle of the wall, and they wheeled it over noiselessly to upend it against the bricks beneath the first balcony of the fire-escape. Donnelly gave Pym a lift from it, and the old sergeant swung himself up to the ladder with the ease of long training in life-saving drill. He was a small man, and he went up the iron rungs as nimbly as a boy. He saw no lights in any of the windows until he came to the top floor. 
and there, though a blanket had been tacked up inside the glasses, a glimmer of light showed through a large rent in the improvised blind. He put his eye to that peephole. He saw a table in the middle of the room with a large glass oil lamp set in the centre of it on a torn and discoloured lace curtain that had been spread for a tablecloth. He saw above the lamp a string of herrings hung there ostensibly to dry, and knowing the methods of East Side arson, he did not need to be told that there was somewhere in the room a hungry cat, whose part it was to draw down the tablecloth and upset the lamp in attempting to climb on the table to get at the fish. He took his jimmy from under his coat and forced the window stealthily. Then he raised the sash, propped it with the tool, and lifted a corner of the blanket. A cat was crouching in a corner of the room, where it had been eating the tail of a herring. He put aside the blanket and clambered in, smiling sarcastically. "'Old devil forgot to hang em all for you, eh, puss?' he said. The animal answered with a frightened meow. "'All right,' he laughed. "'Just as you say. But it's lucky I found you at this instead of his whiskers.' He pushed back his cap from his forehead and pursed his lips coaxingly. "'Poor puss, poor puss,' he said. "'Give me a grip on the back of your neck. That's the way. Come along now. Never mind your grub. I'll fix that for you. Come along.' He carried it to an open door that showed the long tables of a sweatshop sewing-room, and he shut it in there. "'Now,' he said, scratching his ear, "'the next thing, the next thing, is to get a hold like that on Tommy's friend.' He looked thoughtfully around the squalid room that was at once kitchen, bedroom, dining-room, and parlour. A double bed had been drawn up near the table, and the soiled coverings had been thrown over the side of it to make a trail for the flames. He nodded. "'The old man and the old woman,' he said. A mattress lay in the opposite corner under a spread of old clothes. "'And the kids,' he added. He took his chin in his hand. "'Now, if he's sent the family off for the night, I can do it. If he ain't... He went out the window again, and slid down the ladders to Donnelly. "'Tell the cap'n,' he said. "'It's the old game, the cat and the oil lamp. Tell him I'm going to wait here, to lay for the man. And look, now, when you've reported, come back to the corner of the street, see? And get in the shade by the alarm box. And when I yell, fire, send her in.' Donnelly grumbled. "'What are you doing?' Pym said curtly, "'I'm going to help your friend collect his insurance.' "'He's no friend of mine,' Donnelly complained. "'I want to get to bed.' "'You'll get to bed for he will,' Pym said. "'You can bet on that. Make your sneak now. I'm in charge here.' Donnelly turned unwillingly into the hallway, and the sergeant ran back up the ladders. He cut down a clothesline that was stretched from the fire-escape, stripped off his uniform coat and left it with his cap on the balcony, jumped into the room, dropping the blanket behind him to conceal the open window, and began rapidly to tear up the bedspread into narrow strips, which he rolled and knotted into a small hard ball. Then he cut up the clothesline and began to plait the pieces together into various lengths of twisted rope, working busily in the lamplight, without raising his eyes, and every now and then laughing a lean, dry chuckle over his thoughts. When he heard a footstep on the stairs, he sprang back into a corner where the leaf of the open door would cover him. A hand fumbled at the knob. 
He closed his fist on the rag ball which he had made, and tossed the cords over his shoulder. A key grated in the lock with a sound that set his nostrils twitching over the tickle of a bristling moustache. The door was opened cautiously, and hung so for a dozen stealthy breaths. Then the man stepped in, and shut it and Pym, with one swift stride forward, struck up at the base of the man's skull between the rim of his broken derby and the greasy collar of his coat. His hat leaped in the air, his head snapped forward, he threw out his hands with a sickening grunt. His knees broke, and he came thudding down in a heap on himself like a buckled wall at a fire. Pym pounced on him, and tied his hands together behind his back. Then he rolled him over to thrust the rag-ball into his mouth and bound a twisted strip of blanket around his jaw, to hold the gag. Finally he leaped back to lock the door, and said grimly, "'Got you!' Lifting the unconscious man into a chair, he tied him, hands and feet, to the back and legs of it. And when he had tried all the knots for the second time, he got a jug of water from a basin on a box in the corner, emptied it over the bowed head, and sat down on the edge of the table to wait. There was a long, shuddering sigh of returning consciousness. The dripping head began to lift slowly. The body stiffened against the cords with a start as the man looked up, and Pym smiled and smiled into a pair of wide and blinking eyes until they narrowed in a pucker of keen wrinkles under the lowered brows. The sergeant nodded. "'Just got here in time,' he said genially. "'I was afeard your friend in Park Row might keep you late.' and that little illumination of yours been delayed too long as it is. Your people'll be coming in on it." The man made a stifled noise in his throat, looking down at the rope around his waist and the knots at his ankles. "'Don't worry about them,' Pym said. "'I'll look after them. Your cat—' The gleaming eyes shifted in a quick search of the corners of the room. Pym smiled. "'Your cat don't know its business. What you want is to train that cat.' You can't expect it to pull off a job like this without practice, see?" The man's eyes set in a glazed stare of stupidity, which Pym had seen before in the faces of men no less cunning. He smiled again, with a more contemptuous curl of the lip. "'What I move we ought to do,' he said pleasantly, "'is just educate him. We ought to give him a fair chance. And if he don't do the stunt the first time, we ought to let him try again. What do you say?' I've a lot of faith in that cat. I believe he can pull off the game all right. He's got a look like you about his whiskers, that's why." He got down off the table, and crossed the room, to open the door of the sweatshop. He called the cat, and it came to him, tail erect, trustingly. He took it up, purring, in his arms. The chair creaked with the stealthy strain of muscles against the cords as he came back. "'If you're not comfortable in that seat, he said sarcastically, "'Take another!' He sat down on the bed and stroked the cat. "'You see,' he went on, smoothly, "'the thing's like this. A man's got a right to hang up a herring or two to dry, over a table with a lamp on it. Sure, he has. And supposin' there's a cat in the room, a cat that's got a nose for fish. And supposin' he knocks over the lamp and starts a fire, and burns a house or so and a half-dozen women and kids, and blisters up a crew of firemen, or maybe kills some. Well, ain't the house insured, and don't the firemen get paid good wages? Sure they do. There's no kick coming on that, eh, puss? 
the kick comes about the cat the cat loses his life and don't get nothing not even a chaw of fish eh puss and that's what i say too a man that's got his beddin' insured ought to stay and look after his cat he leaned over to glare at his trust victim now he said in another tone no jury on the island would find you guilty of attemptin arson on a game like this neither'd i what proof have i got that the cat'd upset the lamp maybe he wouldn't upset it at all you get the benefit of the doubt sure and i'm going to give it to you he got up and raised the cat to give it a sniff of the fish i don't feel equal to decidin this case he said i'm going to leave it to the cat he put it down on the floor and it mewed hungrily up at him i'm going to leave you and the cat in here together and if the cat don't go after the fish you're acquitted on circumstantial evidence and if the cat do go after the fish well this house is insured and and the firemen are paid good wages and you you he broke out suddenly you sneakin firebug you'll fry in your own pan here you'll bake in your own fire here you'll cook with your rank fish here till there ain't the small end of a cinder of you left and if i know the jury that'll sit on your thief's soul then so welp me you'll sizzle 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 till the everlastin end of everything after that the man had listened staring blankly with no signs of understanding but now when pym put aside the blanket that covered the open window and reached his cap and coat the sight of that uniform startled him into a futile struggle of drawn neck and tugging shoulders his breath fluttered in a quivering nostril his eyes bared of the lids swam big with fear know what's comin' now eh pym sneered i thought you'd wake up he put on his coat and his cap with the air of a workman who has finished his day's job he locked the door of the sweatshop coolly he stepped back to the window i'd like to stay and hear your verdict puss he said straddling the sill but there's likely to be an alarm of fire rung into the truck-house pretty soon i got to get back he dropped the blanket climbed out on the fire-escape and closed the window with a slam then he began to raise it again inch by inch with the care and noiselessness of a burglar and when he had propped it up with his jimmy he put his eye to the peephole and grinned in the dark the man had sunk back weakly in the chair breathless with a struggle to free himself his nostrils working like the gills of a caught fish his eyes drawn aside in a fearful fascination to the cat it had gone across the room to the corner in which pym had first seen it eating the herring and it was smelling and licking the floor where the fish had been when it had cleaned up every last scent there it looked up hungrily at the string above the table polishing its chops with a wistful tongue the man made a gurgling noise to attract its attention and it trotted over to him to rub against his tied leg he tried to smile invitingly down on it with a muffled grin at the same time that he worked treacherously at the cords that held his hands it jumped on his knee and mewed at the fish he jerked vainly at his bonds the muscles in his temples swelled in an impotent effort to chew through the twist of blanket that held him gagged it was useless he was glaring desperately at the friendly animal when it made as if to jump from his leg to the table and he threw it to the floor with a quick fling of the knee pym put his hand to his mouth his shoulders shaking 
The man was almost weeping in the helplessness of rage and fear. The cat had seated itself at his feet, looking up at the fish with its back to him, and whisking its tail across the toe of his shoe. And then the bound foot, held at the angle, wriggled to raise its heel, and when the tail came back, snapped down on it like a rat-trap. The cat jumped with a scream of agony, and, finding itself held, writhed around to bury its claws in its master's leg, biting and scratching like a wild thing, so that the man stiffened in his pain with a start that released it, and it bounded off to a far corner, where it sat down to lick its bruised tail. Pym stifled a chuckle. The man opened his eyes and blinked away the smarting tears, his face white with passion. The cat dressed its wounds and watched him furtively. He bent forward in his chair and stretched his neck as if he were about to spring. The cat crouched. The chair creaked. The cat backed against the wall, mewing plaintively. He shook his head at it with a choked growl, and it began to crawl away toward the other end of the room. He followed it with a glitteringly vindictive eye. It darted across behind the table and skulked out of his sight. Evidently he had intended to keep it in such terror of him that it would forget its hunger, but here, now, it was safe from him and nearer the fish than before, and if he sat quiet it would be on the table as soon as it found its scent. He blinked and studied. Then, suddenly, he sat up to brace himself in the chair, and kicked out at his fetters, in a passionate convulsion, with both feet, with the unforeseen result that he threw himself off his balance, toppled over squirming, and fell heavily on his back. And the cat, frightened by the noise, leaped for shelter under the table, caught in the meshes of the lace curtain that had been spread for a cloth, clawed and rolled around in a fighting frenzy, and brought down the lamp. It broke in a flaming explosion on the floor. Now, Pym gloated, we'll see how he likes a little scorchin' himself. The fall had broken the back off his chair, and when he rolled over on his face he found himself, to this extent, free, that he could straighten himself out. His legs were still tied to the rungs. His hands, pinioned behind him, were fastened to the spindles of the back but by resting his forehead on the floor he could draw his knees up under him. The bed was already afire with the splatter of blazing oil, and the room was filled with a smoke which Pym could smell through the blanket. The cat had fought itself free of the burning curtain after rolling into the mattress with it, and when the man got to his knees he turned to see the whole room behind him apparently in a blaze. He made a frantic effort to jump to his feet. The chair tripped him, and he came crashing down at full length on his face. He did not move again. "'Serve you right if I left you there,' Pym said, stripping off his coat. He took a knife from his pocket and opened it. He tore down the blanket from the window and wound it about his arm. Then he jumped into the room with his elbow shielding his face and dashed through the smoke to his victim. He released him with a few deft slashes opened the hall door, and threw him out on the landing after the cat. Having carefully shut the door again, he muffled his hands in the blanket, ran to the mattress, and rolled it up over the burning clothes to stifle the flames. He overturned the table on the bed and stamped out the fire in the bedding that lay on the floor. And finally, having smothered the burning oil with his blanket, 
he slipped through the window, closed it after him, and raced down the ladders with his jimmy and his coat under his arm. He dropped at the feet of Long Tom Donnelly. "'All right,' he said. "'It's all over.' "'What did you do?' Donnelly asked. "'Well,' Pym said, "'if you'll go up there and get the wadden out of your friend's jaw, perhaps he'll tell you. My own opinion is, if you want to know the facts, you'll have to ask the cat. Here, take this jimmy a minute.' He began to put on his coat, and he stopped, with his arms halfway in the sleeves, to cry, "'What are you doing here? I thought I told you to stand by the alarm-box at the corner.' Donnelly cleared his throat. "'I left a cop there,' he explained. "'I thought you'd want me here to help you, p'raps.' Pym thrust his head forward to stare at him in the dim light. "'A cop!' he said, with a hoarse oath. "'A cop!' "'Sure,' Donnelly replied, in too innocent a tone. "'What's the matter with that?' Pym clenched his teeth and cursed him. "'Oh, you long scut,' he said, "'you vinegary face. That's what you done, is it?' He jerked his coat on with a twist of his shoulders. "'That's your game, is it?' Donnelly took a step back and changed the jimmy from his left hand to his right. Pym looked at him a long time, and then laughed a laugh as mirthful as the leer of a skull. "'And that's Donnelly,' he said. "'That's Long Tom Donnelly, eh? There's a head for you now, ain't it? There's a sharp brain, eh? Gad!' He threw back his head and cackled. "'The cap'n'll laugh to hear this. Turn around and I pat you on the back, Tom, with the toe of my boot. Turn around. No?' "'What's wrong with you?' Donnelly complained. I ain't done nothin' to you. I didn't know what you were up to, up there. I thought anyone would do at the box as well as me. Of course you did, Tom, Pym soothed him. Sure you did, Tom. And maybe better, eh? Especially a cop, in a game like this, eh? Well, Donnelly defended himself. Why didn't you tell me what you were at? How was I to know? Sure, Pym sneered. How was you to know? What did you tell him? I told him you were layin' for a man that was trying to set his flat afire. Pym cursed with plaintive volubility. And suppose this mug goes and makes a kick now. Where'll I be? That's your lookout, Donnelly answered boldly. If you've been getting too gay, it ain't my funeral. Pym drew a long, sharp breath. No, he said, it's mine. Who's the undertaker? What's the cop's name? Slogan, Donnelly answered, with a barely distinguishable note of satisfaction. Pym buttoned up his coat. Aha, uh -huh, he said. Slogan, eh? The new man, eh? Aha! Uh -huh. He began to laugh suddenly. And that's Donnelly. That's long, thin, suety-jawed Tom Donnelly. Go home, Thomas, my boy, and go to bed. Your head'll be tired. You must have overworked it getting up a game like that. Get asleep quick, or you'll have brain fever. Donnelly licked his lips in a way he had when he was puzzled. Pym turned into the hallway. I'll remember you, Tom, he called back over his shoulder, and went laughing down the passage. He had known the slogans, father and son, since the days before Cherry Hill was an Irish quarter. A half-hour later he came back to the truck-house with policeman Slogan, 
and they went upstairs together to make a report in embellished detail to Captain Meaghan, who smiled through it all like the big child he was. "'You want to look out, Pim,' he said at last. "'He may raise a squeal.' "'Not while he has that plug in his jaw, Captain,' Pim said. "'Plug!' Meaghan cried. "'Did you leave the gag in him?' "'Sure,' Pim said. "'I couldn't get his teeth open.' "'And what's more,' the policeman said, with a grin, "'when it comes to talking about this business, he allus will have it in. I saw him. He's scared dumb. Mark my words, Captain, he'll never raise no squeal.' And, so far as the authorities know, he never did. As for Donnelly, as Pym says, "'They say St. Patrick drove all the snakes out of Ireland, but there's a good few of the Irish breed in the fire department.' and when I step near the tail of one, I get off and away without any debatin'. There'll be another of his kind happen along some day, and put a sting in him. Don't doubt it. End of chapter 3